Hi, and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today we have a very special guest. Uh, Erica France is a PhD in social psychology, and uh, we wanted to talk today about priming and all sorts of interesting uh, impacts of that. Uh, so, Erica, I'll let you uh, tell us a little about yourself, and uh, we can get into it. Sure. Um, so I have a degree in social psychology. Uh, I largely study how people form impressions of themselves, of other people, and their social world. Um, so priming really does kind of fall square into some of that. Um, so I guess we can just jump in and talk about what yeah. it is. So yeah, what exactly is priming? Because I feel like we've touched on it. I've kind of talked about how um, psychologists have used it in studies to get people to be thinking about a certain thing. Mm -hmm. But kind of give us like the broad strokes, like what is it and when it's at home? Yeah, so basically priming is a process whereby something in our brain is activated or made what we call accessible. So the way I actually kind of describe this, a footnote or a disclaimer should be that this is in no way the way your actual brain works. But if you kind of imagine yourself taking your fingers and dipping into the front of your brain and grabbing the first concept that's just available to grab, that's something that's accessible. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the accessibility piece. And in terms of how things become accessible, there's really three overall ways. Um, one is if, you're an, if you have some kind of goal. So if you've got a goal that's about some type of concept, then that is kind of constantly running in your mind and it's accessible. So that idea has been primed um, until you complete that goal and then it, it can go away. Uh, another one is chronic accessibility. So this one we can use when we think about um, recent police shootings and that kind of thing. So the way that that would work would be, let's say we have a police officer who works in a low socioeconomic status neighborhood. Odds are pretty good. It's probably pretty high population of minorities. So they see high levels of crime among minorities. So the concept of minorities and crime or aggression become kind of linked. And they see it every day. So that's kind of something that is chronically accessible to them. So when they're viewing the outside world, they view it through that lens of this concept that's accessible. Um, same thing can happen when you think about kids in video games, mm -hmm. right? If they're playing it a lot, the concept of aggression is at the forefront of their mind. So when they go out in the world to play with other kids, they're kind of viewing things through this lens of aggression and might be more likely to be aggressive. Hmm. Um, and then the final one is recent experience. So uh, the example I like to use um, was one I actually saw in a textbook I was teaching from a while ago. So they had a scene where a man was on a bus and somebody comes on the bus and just starts ranting. Now, they then branched it off so that there were two things that had happened prior to this man boarding the bus. In one case, he saw somebody who was drunk walking through the streets. In another case, he had just been reading a book, I forget which book it was, but it had something to do with mental illness. Mm -hmm. So that recent experience then colors how they perceive that person on the bus. So if I've just seen somebody who's drunk, and then I go on this bus and this person is ranting. I think, oh, they must be drunk. If I'm reading a book about mental health and I go on the bus and somebody's ranting, I might think, oh, this person is mentally ill. Um, so what has been made accessible can alter the way I perceive the same objective experience. Right. And yeah. I don't want to jump ahead too far too fast, <laughs> but what this kind of reminds me of is um, things like the framing effect or situations where, like, when, you th when I think about sort of narratives around poverty, let's say, in the news, that either focus on sort of systemic mm -hmm. explanations for poverty versus one-off cases of poverty. Like if I have been exposed to a lot of that and then I see someone on the street asking for money, depending on which narrative I've kind of been exposed to mm -hmm. more, either more recently or more um, repeatedly, 
I might have a different reaction to do they deserve that money, right? Or versus, oh, no, this is something systemic. It's not their fault. Yeah, I might be more willing to give that person money. Yeah, possibly. If that's something that's kind of occurred recently, then those mm -hmm. could explain the perception in that case. Um, that's such a big topic. It really can also go into individual differences. Like mm -hmm. there's something called um, social dominance orientation, hmm. which basically people who are high in that believe there should be a hierarchy hmm. and that certain people should be at the top and should right. be at the bottom. So that could, outside of priming, you know, explain right. part of that because that's a, yeah, how we perceive that kind of thing could be, you know, very different based on a number of factors. But yeah, priming could have mm -hmm. a bit of an effect. Now, I do want to make a disclaimer too mm -hmm. with this priming component. Um, it's super interesting and it definitely could have, you know, effects here and there. However, when it comes to research, priming is particularly finicky, meaning that, um, have you, I can't remember, I don't know if we've had discussions about reproducibility. Actually, I was, I was, yeah, I was going to ask about this because I know there's this thing called the replication crisis, yes, right? Exactly. Which I'll, I'll let you talk about more, but I know that priming and the replication crisis have kind of yes. encountered each other. <laughs> okay, yeah. cool. So you're familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, this cold won't die. Um, so the uh, replication crisis is basically we've got all of these studies in not just social psychology, it's been taken to heart largely in social psychology, but all other kinds of fields, even medical fields, where there's something that we've done studies on it and we kind of felt like this was a thing, there's an effect, it's pretty strong, but then people go back and try to replicate them, which is really the ultimate measure of whether an effect exists. Sure. And then when they go to do that, it doesn't work. Mm. Um, and we've tried to figure out why things like priming may not be replicating. And the thing is, it's... It's so finicky that somebody can do it in one lab and then somebody do it the exact same way in another lab and one works and one doesn't. Mm. Um, so the big one that really came under fire that you maybe may have heard of was, um, it was by John Parge and some of his colleagues. Um, it was an early one from like, I think 96, where basically what they did, and it's a pretty cool setup. So they had um, participants come in and as part of the study that they engaged in, um, they had to memorize a list of words or read through a list of words. And essentially in the critical condition, um, those participants read a list of words that all kind of referred to the stereotype of somebody who was elderly. Mm. So like Florida, you know, slow, um, you know, anything that would have to do with elderly. And then when they thought the study was over, they went and checked out with the experimenter. And then they had to walk down a hall to the elevator. And what they would do was the second they left that experimenter, they pushed a time, uh, what's the word? The stopwatch. Yeah. There we stopwatch, go. Stopwatch. Yeah. And uh, time, the amount of time it took them to get to the elevator. And the hypothesis was that those who had been primed with this idea of elderly would walk slower. And in that paper, they did find that effect. Um, but then somebody went to replicate that study just a few years ago, <coughs> excuse me, when all of this replication really started to, to um, show up and people wanted to do more replication, and it didn't work. Really? And then more labs tried to do it, and it didn't work. So there's a number of things, though. So they, um, oh, how did they manipulate it? They looked at when people would click the stopwatch in different labs, and that could vary by just a little bit. And so things like that, just yeah. the tiniest differences. So it's hard to tell if it's a, you know, an effect of the lab and how people are conducting it, mm -hmm. or if you know, the, the, the priming is, is a problem. Um, but the thing is, if something as tiny as that little stopwatch is reducing the effect, then that suggests that it's not a very robust effect, mm. right? So people are still kind of deciding what the actual answer is. 
I still think it's really cool to talk about. And yeah. I still think that there are some studies that seem pretty robust, but we're in a period where you're just not completely, you can't say for sure that, you know, if I prime somebody with this, that they're going to do, yeah. you know, X, Y, Z. Well, what's interesting to me about that is that even in the one-off studies, if even when they can't replicate the exact effect, there's a commonality to almost the pattern of it. So if I say these words, you behave differently, or if I am, one I read about recently was like someone is up for a job interview and the clipboard that the interviewer is holding is heavier, mm -hmm. they're more likely to get the job because yeah. there's this whole embodied cognition thing going on with the metaphor of heavy be yeah. meaning weighty. Um, that even, uh, even if on their own, they only happened once, the pattern they suggest is interesting to me, even though... I know that I myself want to avoid confirmation bias and I want to see those things replicated mm -hmm. before I start investing yeah. <laughs> heavily in that. But that, that there is this pattern of somehow something that shouldn't make me think or behave a certain way could have, could be, could be as correlating to me behaving or thinking a certain way. Just as a concept, I find that fascinating, mm -hmm. but yeah, like that, I think I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's really important to distinguish between a really good story and like some an repeatable fact or, yeah. or, or behavior. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't want to get too far off track, but one mm -hmm. that since we're just talking about the reproducibility, not to, I'll, I'll do it real quick and then we'll oh, hop yeah, back yeah, out. Sure, sure. Um, within that one that's really big that people have kind of in the greater pop culture taken a hold of is the, the body postures, the power posing. Oh yeah. yeah. So that one, um, Amy Cuddy did those studies some time ago. Um, with Dana Carney, and I think it was Andy Yap, um, and they got published, and people thought they were great, and she wrote this book, and it's great to see a social psychologist be successful. However, when they went to replicate those studies, basically, it's really kind of you're altering your cognition a little bit by feeling powerful and thinking, you know, if I put my hands on my hips like Superman, I'll, I'll be awesome, and it's great that it can have an effect on how people feel and potentially then behave. But when it comes down to the mechanisms where in the paper they say that, you know, this is why this makes such a big difference in how you think, feel, and behave, doesn't replicate. Hmm. Things that they think change, like the testosterone levels and serotonin, oh. they don't actually, those don't replicate. So we've got all these pop culture books out there and they're saying, hey, science says if you put your hands on your hips like Superman, that all this stuff is gonna change and you're gonna be amazing. That's not actually the case, you know, but but if we believe that we've put our hands on our yeah. hips, then perhaps, you know, we'll feel stronger and better and more superman-y, but the science of it isn't yeah. quite isn't quite there. And you're right, that is a whole other yeah, podcast, whole which other I would podcast. love for you to come back and do about like <laughs> even just the notion of science says X. Yeah. Like what do we mean when we say science in that case? There's a whole universe of stuff going on right. there. Um, but to bring it back to, to priming, so we we had kind of discussed uh, like there's a couple different ways priming um, things that priming can influence, like, you know, behavior or perhaps perception. Let's talk a little bit about, like, behavior and a few examples. Yeah, so um, some quick and easy ones. Uh, I won't go into the whole studies, but if uh, you can make a room smell like cleaning liquid, people are more likely to clean up. <laughs> really? Yeah. So I always tell my students, just walk into a room, spray some Windex, and wait for your roommate to come home. Oh, that's so funny. And then maybe, yeah, maybe they'll clean up. Um, uh, so if you have a room set up and you have a backpack at one end in one condition, but in another condition you put a briefcase up there, just, and not even talking about it, just having it in the room, people will be more competitive if there's a briefcase in the room as opposed oh, to a backpack. Wow. 
Yeah. No, are you kidding? Just these wow. tiny things that we don't, yeah, we don't, and you don't even have to attend to it. If you ask somebody what's in that room, odds are pretty good they might re- not remember that there's a briefcase, but they will be more competitive. That's, that's fascinating to me. Just to, to refer a second on that cleaning fluid thing, like literally the room we're sitting in right now, for, the, for our listeners, we're sitting, um, I, I happen to work at an um, experience design firm called Think Company, and we're in one of their boardrooms. And I was in this room the other day at the end of a meeting, and the person who was uh, running the meeting, as we were leaving, mm-hmm. just, I won't say unconsciously, but matter-of-factly started just pushing the chairs back in <laughs> on his own. And then I was in the room with one other person. She started doing the same thing. Yeah. And I felt really compelled to, <laughs> to do it myself <laughs> and part of that is sort of bandwagon effect and other things but just the, again like mm-hmm. this this notion of these things that I, w- I didn't walk into the room intending to do this and yeah. yet now I am doing this yeah. I just found that fascinating yeah yeah there are people yeah and and again we don't always understand you know why we're doing what we're doing which again could be like three more podcasts sure, um, sure. unconscious <laughs> unconscious effects are just so so fascinating um Oh, and there was one other I was going to discuss, uh, weapons. Hmm. So if we had a room, you know, and there was, I don't even, it doesn't even have to be real weapons. It could be like some props or like an ax or like a battle ax or something on the side of the room where we don't talk about it, a gun, a toy gun, whatever it is, if there is a weapon, it kind of primes the idea of aggression and people are more likely to act aggressively than they would if it wasn't there. Wow. Yeah. So that's the weapons priming. Yeah. 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 So it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. Um, there was one, I, and you can tell me if this is sort of like in that in that in that mm. realm. But um, there is a, a study of reactants, where um, they uh, and just for our listeners, we've talked about reactants before. But it's this it's the it's the you can't tell me what to do bias. Like we really don't like being told what to do. Um, but uh, there's one experiment where they have people walk down a hallway, and then uh, choose. There's a bunch of candy bars at the end of the hallway, and they can pick whichever one they want, or three. They can pick any three they want. Mm-hmm. Three of the same, three different ones, whatever. And uh, under normal circumstances, they walk down a normal hallway, and they pick usually three of their favorite candy. There's a, the, that's the control group. The, um, the subjects are sent down a, an, a weirdly narrow hallway. Hmm. When they get to the end of that hallway, they were more likely to pick three different brands of candy bar, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not they actually liked all the three brands. Mm-hmm. And the implication was the... Um, the, narrow, the weird, weird narrowness of the hallway suggested to them confinement, that their, their choices were being limited. Mm-hmm. So when they got to the end of the hallway, they were basically expressing the little freedom that they have <laughs> by, damn it, I'm going to pick three different pan candy bars. Mm-hmm. Um, but did that was sort have, of... Yeah. Did they have a condition where they walked down a really wide hallway? That's a good question. Okay. See, you understand the experimental design part <laughs> of this. <laughs> yeah, I want to know, like, if I have all of this choice, then what do I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. So I walk down a narrow hallway. I feel constricted, so I get there and I take... Three of, or one of each kind, you said, yeah? Yeah, instead of, So I kind of, of yeah. expand my choice as I exert my control. Um, interesting. So I think that kind of fits into a little bit of the embodiment idea. Mm. Um, and we can chat about that real quick. Um, so embodiment, the thing that's different about that, they're mm-hmm. not, and I actually was talking to some friends about this over the weekend because I was trying to figure out how to kind of word the differences because they do kind of come together in that, they're helping make something accessible. Um, mm. And in that case, then changing, you know, um, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Um, but embodiment is essentially where um, something physical affects how you think, feel, and behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here's one of my favorite examples of embodiment. Um, so there was a study done at Yale where they basically had um, 
uh, an experimenter come out and meet the participants. And then um, in order to, it was either sign them in or do something, for a moment they just said to the participant, hey, will you hold my coffee? And it was either a hot coffee or an iced coffee. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So they had them do that and then they signed them in. And then during the experiment, um, they had them rate basically an ambiguous person. We have a lot of studies in, in social psychology where it's a paragraph of a hypothetical person and when you read it, it can really be considered positive or negative. It's pretty ambiguous. Mm -hmm. um, and usually whatever you've had people do first will then color how they perce perceive this person. Um, and so in that case, people who had held the hot coffee rated this person as being more warm, um, whereas the people who had held the co cold coffee rated this person as having more cold traits. Wow. Um, so the idea here with embodiment is that there's something physical mm -hmm. that primes um, whatever that concept is, and then that is what affects your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Mm. Um, so in that case, yeah, that narrow hallway could have primed this idea of feeling constricted, which then primed the idea of lack of control or, mm -hmm. or something like that, which then altered their behavior at the end. I got to say, though, embodied cognition, not holding up well. And some of uh, it... Yeah. Is that also suffering it, from the replication yeah, crisis? Yeah, the rep is not holding up yeah, because yeah, of yeah, replication. Yeah. Some of it does sound real silly. Like the one... I can't remember the whole study, and I feel like one of my friends participated in it, so sorry if you listen to this. <laughs> um, but it was basically where if two people, rated came in, a couple, mm -hmm. came in and kind of responded to some questions about their relationship, you know, how sturdy they were and how stable and some other questions about their satisfaction and commitment and happiness. Um, and then they sat down at a table that was shaky, you know, like when you have a leg off and they did some type of activity. And then while they were there, they had to again rate, you know, how stable is your relationship? Well, they found right, that if they right. were at a shaky as opposed to a stable table, they rated their relationship as less stable. Right. I don't know that I buy that one. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would hold up to replication. But, you know, sometimes they, they work, where sometimes, in, like in that case, they found an effect. Right. Um, but yeah, some of them can be a little, a little much. Yeah, and I feel like that's the trick, too, <laughs> right, with these is, like, to your point about the wider hallway, it's sort of like... In, Part of this is a whole other bias around publication, like only ever publishing the stuff yeah. that worked. But like we have to get better about, okay, I need to know all the times it didn't work and what didn't work and why it didn't work. Like that, that yeah. to me, even if you can't replicate it, gives more validity to the idea as a whole, right? That you're kind of, it's, it's kind of being studied more responsibly, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been a big gripe of mine and a lot of people for a while. And it's difficult because if I do a study that doesn't work, I feel like that should be shared so that somebody else doesn't do what I just did and waste sure. all their time and resources. But then when you think about the logistics of how you share that, journals would then have to get somebody to review your paper that didn't work and say that maybe it should have worked and so it's still a good study, but we're going to publish it anyway, this thing that didn't work. And we have to convince people that it's interesting and important to put into journals things that didn't work when we have so many things that did work. They tried, um, I think it was UNC, tried um, creating a journal for a while that was basically about replications or, or studies that didn't quite work out. It never really took off. Mm. Like, it's just people want to know that information, but they don't want to use up journal space on studies yeah. that didn't work. Now, the one thing that's really cool, so there's a, a journal right now, and I've got a paper I'm supposed to finish it for it, um, <laughs> uh, Comprehensive Results in Social Psychology. And what they do is you basically write a paper before you've run the studies, all of it, the you know, theory, the methods, how you would analyze it and what you expect to happen, and you submit it. Mm -hmm. And if they say that the design and the science are solid and they have three other people review it, just like you would for a journal article, 
no matter what happens, it's accepted. So if it fails, oh, wow. it's pre-registration. So that's the big thing that's they're doing Interesting. Here. So basically, your science is solid, and if you do this and it doesn't work, then okay, people are going to know about it. Yeah. So I'm intrigued to see how that goes. It's in its first year. Um, my study so far was a series of four, and there's a, a manipulation whereby we try to make people feel more or less powerful, mm-hmm. and it's one that most journals say is fantastic did not work across the three of the studies did not work. Mm-hmm. So people need to know that they yeah, need to know that absolutely. this isn't, you know, the be all end all. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way that they're starting to combat this, this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a bit about how priming can affect behavior. How mm-hmm. can it affect like perception? And, yeah. You know. So I actually have a paragraph here. I put it in here and I want to read it to you. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so let me think if I want to tell you beforehand. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you beforehand. Um, so the basic way they do this study, this was, Um, first done in the 70s, and they've used variations on this for quite a while now. It's called the Donald paradigm, um, because there's a paragraph about this guy, Donald. And so in the particular study I'm talking about, um, people came in, and they had to memorize a list of words, just a list. They didn't know what they were referring to or relevant to. Um, And half of them had words that were overall pretty positive, Um, things like, um, what were they, adventurous, uh, you know, along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then others were more negative, like irresponsible or reckless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in what they thought was a separate study or a separate part of the study and that these two things were not at all related, they had to read this paragraph. So I'm going to read this to you. Now think of this as you're reading it through, if you can, as you might if you had heard negative words beforehand or positive, just kind of sure. so that you can see both ways. Donald spent a great deal of time in a search of what he liked to call excitement. He'd already climbed Mount McKinley, shot the Colorado Rapids in a kayak, driven in a demolition derby, and piloted a jet-powered boat, without knowing very much about boats. He had risked injury and even death a number of times. Now he was in search of new excitement. He was thinking perhaps he would do some skydiving, or maybe cross the Atlantic in a sailboat. By the way he acted, one could readily guess that Donald was well well aware of his ability to do many things well. Other than business engagements, Donald's contacts with people were rather limited. He felt he didn't really need to rely on anyone. Once Donald made up his mind to do something, it was as good as done no matter how long it might take or how difficult the going might be. Only rarely did he change his mind, even when it might well have been better if he had. So you can see (laughs) he could be the most interesting man in the world. Right. Or he could be really selfish, reckless, and irresponsible. Totally. Right? So that's what they found. Um, And essentially, I put the results in here. Um, With people who formed, uh, or people who had first read negative words, only 10% of them formed positive impressions of Donald. People who had read positive words formed uh, 70% of them formed a positive impression of Donald. Mm. So that's one of those kind of, again, ambiguous paragraphs that we use in our research, where if you just read it without knowing anything beforehand, you might think some of it's good, some of it's bad. But if you're primed with this idea yeah. of positive or negative, then he's either a jerk or he's amazing. Is there, I don't know, I feel like, is there a crossover here? By the way, when I heard Donald, I just immediately thought of Donald Glover. And so no matter what, it was positive. But um, <laughs> is there, because what this reminds me of is sort of how, and I forgot which effect it was I, even t- I was even talking about, but it's probably related to framing or anchoring. But this idea that, and just basic confirmation bias, right? Like if I walk in the room with a certain point of view on something, mm. especially if it's ambiguously mm-hmm. written, like I, it's much easier for me. And is that, is, is that what I'm accessing is sort of like the interpretation of that paragraph where Donald's awesome mm-hmm. is easier to access if I walked in with a bunch of positive yeah. attributes of Donald. So that actually really ties into um, something else I was going to bring up anyway, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Um, so self-fulfilling prophecy 
you know, you walk into a situation, I always tell, when I had students, you know, they'd have to do a lot of group work in college, which is like the bane of their existence. <laughs> um, and so I always use an example that, you know, let's say you've got to do a group project and you walk in and you see somebody in your group and it's somebody that maybe a friend has told you in the past is a terrible group member. So you walk in and you're like, you just got this expectation. This is going to suck. Um, this person's awful. <clears throat> so if you do that, imagine the attitude you have walking into a group and you're just like, oh, this sucks. You're at, going to act in a way that aligns with that attitude. Sure. They're going to perceive that. And they're going to be like, well, this person's awful, so I'll be awful to them. <clears throat> and then once they're awful, you're like, see, I told you they were going to yep. be awful. So it's this vicious cycle. Um, now, in r the real world, that can have really horrible outcomes. And uh, we've seen this in research on job interviews. Mm. So when we think about race, age, gender, um, the big three, they can, they've done studies where they give somebody a resume um, before the interview and it has a name that's very clear, clearly black or white um, or male or female. And so they have an automatic expectation. Regardless of how good the resume is, they have the, the interviewer has an expectation about how that's going to go. Um, and what they find is there was one with race where they found that interviewers um, with black applicants were actually more likely to ask less questions, give them less time to respond. Mm. Um, not have you know that that, that um, kind of warm communication. They were sitting farther away. So essentially, in that case, I'm the interviewer. I'm being a bit of a jerk. I'm not giving you a lot of time to talk. I'm not really letting you give the best responses. So you're going to get a little anxious. You're going to you know not feel as confident. And then that's going to come across. And then the interviewer is going, "This guy's flopping. You know, yeah. he can't even answer simple questions. He's terrible, just like I thought they would be." Um, so that self-fulfilling prophecy. And so an interesting one that they did to kind of double check that, um, they did a, a study with all white participants and a white interviewer, and they actually trained the participants to act um, in the same way that a black and white interviewee would respond to you know, a standard interviewer. So one white interviewee acted very confident and, and um, you know, able and... and uh, that's what I'm looking for. Well, competent. Um, and then the other one acted kind of anxious, you know, and, and a little nervous and um, the way that you would expect um, somebody who wasn't being given the full opportunity would, would act. And same thing happened. They would hire the confident guy, not hire the, you know, anxious guy. Um, so it's really this, this mm -hmm. vicious cycle of, of expectations and, and how things come out. Yeah, and like you can see this play out with race a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually in a conversation with an African-American friend of mine, and we are both amazing tippers. And the reason we are both amazing tippers is because there is a stereotype mm -hmm. that African-Americans are poor tippers. So we feel like personally beholden to make up for this. The irony is that because of the nature of, <coughs> uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the bias, it kind of doesn't matter because the decision whether or not to give good service happens the second, you know, I walk into the room. Mm -hmm. If this is someone who's already prepared to believe that black people tip poorly, the second I walk in the room, they don't know how I'm going to tip yet. I haven't given this amazing tip yet, so they're, you know, more likely to give poor service. And all things being equal, if they give poor service, I am now more likely to tip poorly. So you yeah. end up with this cycle of, like, you know, yeah. of the stereotype just so replicating wait, itself. Do you still tip well even if you get poor service? So it's, this is kind of what we <coughs> talked about. It's sort of like we, we grade on a curve. Mm -hmm. So if we give you, like, a, between me and, and, and this friend of mine, like, mm -hmm. if we give you a 15% tip, that probably means you were terrible. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do the same. Because it's more important yeah. for me as a black man to fight the stereotype than it is to tip appropriately. Yeah. 
No, I get that. It's, it's this whole cultural That's interesting. thing. I but, mean, yeah, but theoretically, cycle. you know, depending on how often you go out, you could be changing the minds yeah. of people in the greater Conshohocken area. Exactly. But I'm going to have to get a lot of food before I do that. <laughs> uh-huh. But little by little, baby yeah. steps, baby yeah. steps. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way to look at it. It makes sense. Again, our minds. We can yeah. just, yeah. So what is it about priming in particular? Because we had like lots, lots of different topics we were mm-hmm. thinking about. What about what kind of fascinates you about priming in particular? So, you know, really just anything where we think that we are in control of what we mm. think, feel, and do, and our brains are just like, Mm-mm, sorry, no. Um, <laughs> there's an entire argument. It's died down a little bit recently, but there's an entire argument as to whether or not humans actually have free will. Sure. Because the idea is that I think that I am reaching over to pick up this water because I realize that I am thirsty. When in actuality, my automatic brain, my lizard brain, made that decision like 10 seconds ago. Um, maybe not 10 seconds, probably more like milliseconds, but still. Yeah. It made that second before I was, decision before I was consciously aware of it. Um, so really anything that kind of unconsciously affects our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, I think is, is always really fascinating because we just don't know. Um, and just as kind of a, like, yeah, this really fits in, I think. I think recently, and I've explained this a lot to students as well, when we think about the police shootings, mm-hmm. right? That's a huge topic. And in no way am I excusing it, but when you think about understanding it a little bit and understanding how some of it is happening, it's, it's interesting and it makes you think about it in a slightly different way. So think about what I talked about with this chronic accessibility, right? Um, cops... Typically, especially when they're in uh, minority neighborhoods, they just come to associate minorities with violence just so implicitly and so automatically that in that moment when they don't have time to think about, you know, is this person not aligning with the stereotype? Is this, you know, an individual? They have to act quickly. They, they are more likely to engage in, in violent behavior because that's what's accessible. Again, it's not a good thing. It's yeah, not, yeah, you know, yeah. it's obviously not excusing it. This, but when you think about that, at least you can kind of recognize where this problem is coming from mm-hmm. and then start to figure out solutions, which um, I know psychologists who are working with police departments to try to figure out how to, how to adjust this. But, I mean, bias, you know, these are things we start learning they've seen it in babies that we start to learn associations between, you know, certain things. Um, Babies have biases for pretty faces over unattractive ones. I mean, four months old. Yeah. They will spend more attention. Yeah. They'll spend more (laughs) attention looking at pretty faces than, than than unattractive faces. (laughs) Like we start this at a very young age. Um, And so if you think about as each time, um, if you think about a link, I always tell people to think of our associative networks in our brain. Like, do you remember in high school building like models of like H2O and mm, yeah, 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 those little balls and sticks, yeah, yeah. the ball and stick model. Um, so when two things, so you've got a stick and it attaches two balls and each ball is a concept, let's say African-American and violence. Um, every time that little stick gets activated, mm-hmm. you know, you see the news where a black man did something bad or, um, you see one getting arrested or, you know, something happens where that's activated that gets stronger and stronger. <coughs> that stick gets thicker and thicker. Mm-hmm. So that when you think African-American, it just automatically lights up that stick and goes to violent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we can see how, how entrenched that is. And breaking that stick or trying to get a new stick attached to that to that link is difficult. It takes effort, like effort, effort, effort. And even then, it's still there. Yeah. You know, it's still there. We can work, you can be the most egalitarian person in the world and just be like, I love everyone and everybody's amazing and they're an individual. But in the moment when you've got milliseconds to decide, mm-hmm. it's still there. 
It's funny. It brings a lot of things to mind. One thing is, I've sort of always maintained that I think the single greatest achievement, you know, uh, of Barack Obama, was being a black man on the news every night who was not a criminal or a celebrity. Mm-hmm. That that, like, I even I even suspect that part of the reason, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, started to get Sorry. momentum then, as opposed to any of the other times throughout history that black people were being mm-hmm. shot by the police, is that there was now a little cognitive dissonance around the idea of a black man, sh- of a black man getting shot by the police, because the idea of black man wasn't only associated with criminal anymore; it was now associated frequently with the most powerful man on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know scientifically if that's true, but I sort of it, it, it's curious to me that that's when people really started getting uncomfortable about that. Yeah. Um, on, on a kind of a broader scale. Um, but, uh, and then the other thing that kind of comes to mind is I know that there are a few, uh, like to your point, there are a few counties, um, one in Florida, I believe, and one in California, actually, um, which historically have been terrible about, about mm-hmm. that, but where they've seen um, officer-involved shootings go way down, and a lot of the training involves slowing down mm-hmm. and de-escalating. Yeah. Right. Because that because that does seem to be the common factors when we're in a rush, when we haven't had enough sleep, when we're like, you know, just like, yeah. go, go, go. Yes. The worst the worst of us will the most accessible thing will win. Yep. But if an officer is trained to when to when given that trigger, slow the situation down, mm-hmm. they have found that um, or at least that's been a common part of the training is that has resulted in fewer um, officer-involved shootings. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. Um, the ones that I've known about kind of combine both of those. They try to do what's called counter-stereotyping, hmm. which is essentially they show pictures of like Barack Obama, mm. Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, and you know try to create new associations. Yeah. But again, they have to do that repeatedly, repeatedly, sure. repeatedly. Um, and yeah, the Obama effect is, is super interesting. Uh, I think it definitely had some positive effects. The one negative, which was actually surprising that most people didn't predict, was that a lot of people were like, so racism, done. <laughs> Black president, check. Yep, yep. And so people stopped trying as hard yeah. um, because they kind of figured we were, we were good. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, that was a little problematic. Um, but yeah, overwhelmingly, I think, I think it was generally a good idea, or not a good idea, a good thing to have happened for um, the black community. Um, there's one other thing that came to mind. Uh, yeah, so when we think about current times, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of an interesting almost rebound effect a little bit hmm. because I think during the time that we had a black president, it wasn't cool to yeah. be racist, right? <laughs> like the, the norm wasn't yeah. um, to express those types of attitudes, and now people feel like they can. I know a lot of people in the social psych world have really been interested in this and, and interested in, and they've written some different articles um, for more popular magazines even about it just because it's like people feel that there's a license like the norm in society now is that it's okay Mm -hmm. to to say the things that you couldn't say during the obama presidency um we're getting a bit adrift from priming but uh yeah it's it's a it's very it's very interesting to the psychological world to see the shift it's not that there's a shift in attitudes it's just that there's a shift in whether or not people feel okay saying yeah. what they were feeling. It's not like people have become more racist. They were just as racist, yeah. but they didn't feel like they could say it, and now they can. Yeah, and, and by the way, I don't mind drifting. That just tends to be how my <laughs> conversations go. But um, I consider it a feature, not a bug. But, um, but uh, and, and that, I mean, in, 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 my, in my darkest hours, I actually think that maybe we would we would have been less likely to get Trump without Obama. That, mm-hmm. that because... 
and there's like I think a concept of like of moral licensing, like yeah. where in lots of cases where you get the first black president, the first female prime minister, that's the last one of those for a while. Yeah. Because people are like, oh well, I've proven I'm not sexist. I've proven I'm not racist. Now we can get back to business as usual, yeah. or or even worse, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. Because like I don't feel beholden to you know whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, one of the um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about a bit is I know that you also do or a lot of do work in UX mm -hmm. and whether it's priming per se or just how your work, how your training and um, uh, social psychology background informs that is really interesting to me because it seems like there should actually be yeah, a lot of overlap lot. there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was thinking about priming a little bit actually and how it kind of relates. Priming, <coughs> again, the thing with that is that it's difficult to kind of pin down. Mm -hmm. But I think it is something that people should consider. I think largely in things like copy, just writing mm. things. You know, um, I'll never forget, I was looking for the email, and I think I may have deleted it. A few years ago, I ordered a skincare product. Um, it was from a startup that a friend of mine was working for. And they sent me this original initial email that's kind of like, welcome to, you know, this product. And they meant to say that there may be, um, when you first use it, you might have some, you know, redness or a little reaction because this is like clinical grade skincare. But it was terrifying. Like the words that they used were just overly, um, I don't know, negative, really. Mm. There's the valence of them. Like they just felt negative. And I was like, I don't want to use this lotion. <laughs> I don't know what this is going to do to me. Sure. Um, and there were so many other ways they could have said it was the thing. Like they just, they kind of went with fear, which was a terrible idea. Yeah. And so just something like that primes this kind of negative feeling. You know, using certain words when you're, when you're talking that have more negative or aggressive connotations can really alter how someone perceives an entire experience. Mm. Um, and a lot of times people don't think about, you know, all the, all the words that they're using in those kinds of things. Um, images, you know, if you use images that have positive or negative connotations or associations, <coughs> excuse me, it may seem kind of inane, but the smallest thing <coughs> can really, you know, affect how somebody perceives something. Um, I don't know that I buy into it, but there's work on colors. Mm. You know, the, the red, for example, is more arousing and blue is more calming. I'm not 100% sure how I feel about it, but, you know. You're not, you're not the first person uh, to, I was talking to actually another, just randomly, uh, a social psychologist I, I, I met, and they were, they, they, uh, they also gave that a little bit of the side eye, because yeah. the, the one I was thinking of was, is um, around uh, creative tasks versus um, sort of detail-oriented tasks. Mm -hmm. And it's there's one where if I show you a proofreading task with a red background, people caught proofreading errors 30% more often. Mm -hmm. And if I show you a blue background for a, um, a brainstorming task, people came up with twice as many ideas with the blue background. Right. But again, it's one of those, I would like to see the replication, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, and like yeah, the it feels mechanism, too easy, you know? <laughs> right, so I would think that would be interesting. And this may have been done. I haven't done a lot uh -huh. of research on this. But if something like that, if there was like GSR, so skin response, so do I know that this person is having like greater physiological arousal mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the blue? Maybe they're you know a little yeah, more calm. Yeah. I just the, the the that's what's really interesting with these with these different kinds of effects is what is the mechanism? So yeah, I do social absolutely. cognition, which is, um, yeah, really looking at processes. So like X predicts Y. Cool, mm -hmm. but why? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> like what is it? You know, what is it about? red that would lead people to focus in more. We can hypothesize that, you know, they become more aroused and then, so because of that, they become hyper-focused, but we don't know that, you know, right. we'd have to measure something, you know, physiologically in this case to determine 
what is happening there. Yeah. Um, by the way, that reminds me of one of the coolest uh, experiments like that. Mm. Um, this gets back to our like unconscious conscious thing. But um, uh, Joey Ito was talking about an experiment that they did out of uh, MIT's effective computing mm -hmm. lab where they showed people pictures of, or showed people um, footage of people um, saying their name. And half of the people were lying about mm. their name. Uh -huh. And then they had people guess afterwards, okay, how many, you know, which, which people were lying. Um, and as you might expect, like, we're terrible at telling yep. people are lying to us. People did terrible at, yep. at that task. However, they were hooked up to, I think it was a galvanic skin response. And every time they were lied to, their skin, their body responded, <laughs> their body responded to the lie. How whereas it didn't happen. And the going theory as to why they quote unquote got it wrong is yeah. that even if they sensed something was wrong, it's impolite to call people a liar. Yeah. So there were these social cues they were trying to like adhere to. Huh. But regardless of the 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 why the, the psychological why, yeah. the body was noticing something that their mind was not at least explicitly acknowledging, which I just found. Yeah, so that's really weird. interesting. <laughs> huh. But, yeah, but so to your point, I would that would kinda, be a good way to test the color thing too. Yeah. yeah, and I'm trying to think of so I physically know that something is off. Either I'm, yeah, I'm not attending to it, I'm not interpreting it correctly. Because we are, so when it comes to like emotions, for example, mm -hmm. the way those work is actually really weird. So we experience physiological arousal, like maybe our heart beat, you know, it, um, speeds up, or maybe our chest tightens, or maybe, you know, our hands get a little clammy, or we just feel something. And then we look around for what to, to label it as. Am I sad? Mm. Am I happy? Am I angry? Mm -hmm. um, and there's tons of studies where people have messed with that. Like they give them a shot of um, epinephrine and then they have them sit in a room with somebody who's like really angry and then they feel like they're angry. But they're not. They're attributing the epinephrine effect to what's around them. Huh. But they're not actually angry. They have no reason to be angry. Um, so when you think about that, like maybe they felt that arousal, like they felt their body do something, but they, maybe they didn't know what to attribute it to. I don't know. That's really interesting. Um, and yeah, we generally do have a positive, I'll call it a positivity bias such that we are more inclined to think of people as good. Mm. So I could definitely see there being an effect where we don't want to call people liars. Um, interesting. Yeah. I think that's a really cool study. Yeah. Um, did you ever watch the show lie to me? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah. so good. That's actually based, that's based on a real so, psychologist. Yeah, how is, yeah. How, how has the science on like micro, so just for, for our users and certainly Google and find this on Netflix. This is a really fun show. Super um, good. Uh, Timothy, blanking on his name, he was in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, find uh, it later. Tim Roth. Tim Roth, yeah. I love Tim Roth. Anyway, Tim Roth was played this, actually it was based on a real psychologist. Paul right? Ekman. Who could, Paul Ekman, who mm -hmm. could sort of read what they call micro-expressions. I'll let you explain what they are, but that was sort of the gist of the show, is he could use that to solve crimes, basically. Yeah. It was super cool. So he actually did work with um, tribes, uh, and I believe it was the Amazon could have been Africa, I'm blanking right now, but he did with tribes who did not have communication with the public. And what he would do is he would study their facial expressions and having no communication with anybody outside of their own tribe, they recognized the six basic emotions, like happiness, sadness. If you showed them a face, mm -hmm. they recognized how that person felt. And if you said, you know, show me what your face looks like when you're happy, sad, angry, they'd used universal 
facial expressions for happy, mm-hmm. sad, angry. And so from that, he really started studying, you know, micro expressions. My favorite is disdain, where your lip kind of curls up just a little bit. And on one of, I think it may even be the pilot, he shows a, a compilation of like Cato Kaelin and like yeah, that was my favorite yeah, part of the show. That's a great one. Yeah. Every time they cut to commercial, like he would say something. You know what? That is that's disdain, and they would cut to like yeah. you know, uh, Bill Clinton or whatever, like a bunch of people yes. like with the exact same Shame. expression on yeah. their face. And I was like, that's so cool. It's fascinating, <laughs> and yeah, it's really so. There's um, something called the facial action coding system, and you have to get certified in it to actually hmm. be able to. Um, reliably say that you can judge micro expressions and it's this big binder it's mm-hmm. a whole thing not a lot of people are certified um, but yeah micro expressions are are a thing they've been um, pretty well validated from what I understand but again it really comes down to can the person attempting to read them right. you know validly and reliably read them um, the show did really well I watched it a lot they messed up once have you talked about the IAT I don't think so. No, no, no. Oh, we should talk about that sometime. The implicit association task, where essentially we measure like immediately if somebody associates black with bad as opposed to white sure. with bad. Um, but that test doesn't mean you're a racist. Like it just has to do with your associations. However, there was one episode where a police officer took an IAT and somebody testified that that meant that they were racist. Uh, and I was like, ah, okay. oh, <laughs> you guys were doing so well. Um, but otherwise, science based, yeah. it was a pretty, it was a really well done show. I was pretty impressed. Um, but yeah, those facial expressions are super cool. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Oh, I don't even know how we got to that. How do we even end up I, on that? I'm not even sure. <laughs> we were talking a bit about uh, UX and, and, and yes. psychology. So I don't know if you had any other examples. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it does depend on what you do. There's so many things that you can study in social psychology. But what I do specifically really has to do with how we form impressions. And one of the things in social cognition is what we call heuristics. You've talked a lot about heuristics, mm-hmm. right? But heuristics, I basically think of as mental shortcuts. Sure. So. If I'm a human and I'm looking at, let's say, a website, um, where is my instinct to go to click to, to do X, Y, Z? And there are so much, there's so much that we know about heuristics and what people will generally do that that knowledge can then map on to give a website or an app or whatever a head start in mm-hmm. you know, designing and, and figuring out um, you know, how things should ideally be before moving into further um, Phases and even in the research phase, like we kind of know, you know, what to look for. It just makes sense based on what we know about humans and how they generally um, behave and what is considered intuitive, mm. um, because there's so much that we know about. You know, who was it? Irrationally predictable was that Kahneman? Oh, Daniel Ariely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ariely was irrational. irrational. Yes, yeah, predictably. Yeah, yeah. That is one of my favorite things. We are predictably irrational. Yeah, yeah. Like those heuristics, they predict the most irrational things we're going to do, but we know that people are going to do these irrational things. Right. So. In knowing that, I mean, that's super valuable in the UX world um, and figuring how to make things intuitive for people, mm-hmm. um, even though on paper it may not seem logical. Right. Yeah. No, that's so, awesome. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I feel like that's the theme of the whole show. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to have you back on because I think we touched on 50 other things yeah. to do a whole podcast <laughs> about. Um, but uh, for uh, the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. My guest has been Erica France, and we will see you uh, next time. 